0: Is there a way to encourage and support new ways of thinking to solve our biggest problems? What approaches right now are transforming health and development, and who's driving them?
1: The way that we work is focusing on policy and advocacy. Um, you know, when we think about how decisions are made, um, especially at the political level, what we tend to overlook is the investment in activism, policy leaders with deep expertise
2: who are telling their stories, but also talking about solutions. Our guest today thinks and acts to bring answers to these questions. Lola Adedokun is the executive director of the Aspen Global Innovators Group and the co-chair of the Aspen Institute Forum on Women and Girls. We want to continue to promote that way of leading, um, knowing that the experts are truly um,
1: women who are advancing gender equity and justice and their allies. Um, so we're we're passionate, as you might can tell from, from from my voice, but in our community about continuing to demand not just equity but justice uh, as women be continue to lead in responding to crises and pandemics around
0: the globe.
2: This is Conversations on Healthcare.
0: Well, Lola, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. It's a privilege to be here. Oh, that's great. We're so glad to, to be with you at the Aspen Ideas Health and hear you speak about the Aspen Global Innovators Group, uh, which is a policy group of the Institute. Now, you lead this uh, team that advances a portfolio of programs focused in on health and prosperity in the United States and, and around the globe. I wonder if you could just fill our audience in on its history and mission.
1: Absolutely. Um, The Aspen Global Innovators Group has been in existence actually for over 30 years. Um, The founding sort of visionary of the group, Peggy Clark started it and is one of the visionaries behind the institute writ large. But it was designed really to amplify the voices and expertise of global leaders who have uh, local experience, proximate experience, and who also tend to be uh, overlooked when it comes to designing solutions that work best for them. Um, In the last 10 years, we have launched a number of fellowship programs that enable and strengthen the power and visibility of these leaders by investing in their communications capacity, connecting them to the right kinds of funders and actors that enable them to replicate and scale their innovations. Um, And it's been incredibly successful. We now have a robust, vibrant community of leaders um, in 55 countries, in the Americas, Asia, the Caribbean um, who are doing incredible work. There are about 200 fellows in our network. And what's really exciting about uh, our programming is the fact that, especially in this moment, as we continue to, um, recover from the trauma of a global pandemic and also work to, um, build rebuild systems that engage and embed new trust, um, We have fellows in the U.S. uh, who are now tackling similar challenges, but are working side by side, our partners uh, around the globe.
2: Well, it's incredibly important work. And I know that uh, part of your efforts with Aspen are focused on what you call powerful women who are redesigning health systems that better meet the needs of families. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what are, I'm sure everyone is completely an individual, but what are some of the common traits Uh, that you see, or maybe some of the common backgrounds, pathways? Is there there a theme that you see there with the group?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, we we know um, that engaging women leaders uh, authentically will result in improved and accelerated uh, solutions to challenges. We know that because women are actually at the front lines all the time in crisis and in the day-to-day services. We know that women make up. The majority of the healthcare workforce globally. um, And we see the impact of that. However, what we do see, and that what we're working on tackling through the Aspen Forum on Women and Girls and with other partners at the Aspen Institute, is ensuring that women's leadership rises to the top. What tends to happen is that leadership tends to be, again, overlooked and ignored, and the way that they lead. Um, So I want to sort of narrow down on that. The way that women lead is different. Um, And the skill sets that they bring are now becoming more valued. We used to call them soft skills. These are characteristics of empathy, of compassion, of being flexible and adaptable, um, and of bringing community together in ways that are uh, authentic. Um, And so we want to continue to promote that way of leading um, knowing that the experts are truly um, women who are advancing gender equity and justice and their allies. Um, so we're, we're passionate, as you might can tell from, from, from my <laughs> voice, but in our community about continuing to demand not just equity, but
0: justice uh, as women be, continue to lead in responding to crises and pandemics around the globe. Well, those are so fundamental to a fair and just society. And speaking of challenges, there are numerous legal and political challenges to progressive thinking. And you've written in your annual report, and I wanted to quote, that the Supreme Court's recent ruling contradicts the idea of equality in the United States Constitution by denying women and girls the ability to make their own decisions about their bodies and families and threatening body sovereignty. wondering how are you navigating these times, including the headwinds against uh, uh, equality and equity efforts?
1: That's a a great question, and and, uh, it's of chief concern to many of the leaders in our group. So the way that we work is focusing on policy and advocacy. Um, You know, when we think about how decisions are made, uh, especially at the political level, what we tend to overlook is the investment in activism, policy leaders with deep expertise who are telling their stories, but also talking about solutions. Mm-hmm. And so for, for the work that we do, we really are working to speak from places of privilege, uh, where I sit at the Aspen Institute, is a place, an institution of privilege to work alongside those who have been in the fight for decades to align with them and use our resources and use our, our, our platforms to advance this policy agenda. And, and finally I'd add, you know, this is a global problem and one of those challenges that um, the, now the US is humbled to work alongside other countries that have similar reductive policies. Um, and that is why we work community to community with fellows uh, around the globe to ensure that we are having and learning from those who've been in this fight for much longer than we have in the
0: U.S. Lola, are there any other uh, global groups that you're working with that share in the mission and also are sort of centers for this uh, energy and creativity that you're cultivating?
1: I am very lucky to have incredibly um, passionate allies in this work. Uh, Partners in Health, uh, they are an incredible organization working globally as well, by Paul Farmer um, and other leaders, um, you know, our partner, we partner with them and the University of Global Health Equity that's based in Rwanda. Um, I want to give Rwanda as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, past, after they recovered from the genocide or as part of the solution, they made very clear policy commitments to ensure that women's leadership was embedded in every sector of government. If you don't make it a policy, it will not happen. And they have showed that they can actually change the demographics um, and change outcomes. Mm-hmm. So they, they can tell a full story and a through line around gender equity and justice that we're incredibly proud of. Another organizations I'll just name Global Health Corps, another leadership development organization and ally in our work, um, uh, and there are many more. But um, we know that we are not alone in this work. We know that we have to partner um, with academicians, with policy and advocacy organizations, and with senior leadership at the government letter level. So we partner with, with anyone who has a voice and who is committed um, to this work and ready to face the backlash.
0: Wonderful.
2: Well, I think it's an incredibly impressive uh, part of the work that you're making sure local leaders are at the forefront that they're the ones designing solutions that work for their local populations. Um, I think the grant making and change agent world hasn't always been at the forefront of recognizing those individuals because they may not have the resume or the particular background they may, they may not have uh, the background that others that they're uh, used to have. What techniques are you using both to adjust the mindset on the part of the the uh, change agents and the grant makers, but also on the part of giving people the confidence to step forward? Forward and say, yes, I'm ready to take on this, this leadership. Seems like both of those are really important in this work.
1: They are. Um, you know, part of it is standing strong and being clear about our commitment, and also being willing to give cover to organizations that um, may not be in a position to speak loudly uh, around these issues, but we can on their behalf. So we do a lot of that work where we will and I will um, use our voice to write, to speak on key platforms about the centering of women's expertise uh, in all areas. Um, and I, I'd also note that uh, in the funding community, we engage in a lot of thought partnership and thought leadership. And we lean into those who've been fighting this fight for us. Um, and their wisdom and expertise. Um, we, we've contributed to also to a number of reports that have been impactful and and bringing people along uh, other partners who wouldn't stand as strong in the mm-hmm. issues, but with the data, data matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're working very closely with other partners who are helping us inform that data. One partner who I have to name, um, is Peggy, Peggy Clark, who leads the, um, uh, ICRW, which is focused on um, research related to women globally. Um, and she's been an incredible uh, contributor to the, uh, all the data it takes uh, to convince people um, uh, around the globe to really start to change the way that policies are both designed for women and also implemented.
0: Well, she's a great leader. Um, You know, we're seeing uh, the federal government uh, taking uh, this approach that the the U.S. Agency for International Development now stresses the need to shift power to local actors and the need for inclusive development lens Uh, Do you think the entire Western nonprofit sector is accepting this perspective? Uh, Or is there some, let's just say, resistance?
1: That is a great question. I think they, I'll start with the intention. And I think the intention for a lot of federal agencies and global donor agencies is there. The challenge is uh, really a fundamental question of trust um uh, you know one of the questions we get is well how do we know this organization can really do the work how do we know that they can absorb our dollars how do we know that they can achieve the outcomes that they say that they can achieve um and so the way that we work is to serve again as that cover support and advocate for these local organizations it's all about implementation so while i'm excited um really am um, that the global health sort of development community have finally a- arrived at a commitment to supporting local organizations, we wow. now need to work together to figure out how to do that effectively and how to lead from behind, which is, uh, you know, it's not the typical colonialist approach. Um, this is requiring a step back and a rethink of what, what support really looks like. Um, And what a handoff of leadership really looks like. So that's where the rubber hits the road. Um, And we're engaging with a number of um, implementing partners around the globe who are tackling bravely um, this recalibration of where they fit um, some of the largest implementing agencies around the globe. And I'm I'm pleased to be part of those conversations. And I'm excited about the fact that they are authentically doing their best to make real this, this articulated
0: commitment. Do you have a scorecard or have developed some mechanism? I know in the environmental movement, uh, you know, people are trying to frame up how 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 can I assess where they are, and it's helpful for the organization because you need to know what, what what you need to do to improve. A- any thoughts around that? Uh, I do have
1: thoughts. So you know. Of course, there are the sustainable development goals, Mm -hmm. which are a helpful framework and guide for governments and parties to sort of align themselves around Uh, aspirational, um, Mm -hmm. but some realizable um, goals. With that said, uh, I think, again, this leans into valuing other ways of knowing, knowledge and expertise, and trusting organizations that have already proven themselves. They may not use the same metrics that have been designed typically in, in the U.S. and in Geneva and in places that are not close to where the work is. Mm-hmm. However, they have evidence of impact. So I, I'm on the fence. I think it's very important to have a framework and a guide and a pathway that the globe agrees on, like the SDGs. Right. But then there needs to be that nuance around what other meaningful metrics um, that are more local uh that we need to collect and so we're, we're we're working with our colleagues and peers to think about what that means um and so we'll we'll continue on that venture but again if organizations have proven themselves already have trust in the community aligning them to deliver on goals that enable them to replicate and scale their interventions that's the most important um pr- sort of uh, priority i believe that democracy.
2: You know, Lola, we we often say in healthcare that all healthcare uh, is local, and building healthier communities uh, certainly requires local civic engagement. And I've uh, read about one of your projects here in the U.S., one of your Healthy Communities Fellows projects, uh, who founded a nonprofit in San Antonio uh, that was using garden-based learning as a strategy for building healthier communities, but doing it with that civic uh, engagement lens. Tell us a little more about that project. And you have such a diversity of projects, but tell us a little bit about that one.
1: Uh, That's Stephen Lucky. He runs Gardopia Gardens. He's a fantastic leader. Um, This is why we love the work and our leaders. We are public health experts. And you know that addressing health and and public health and improving the well-being of people in community requires or enables many entry points. And so his entry point is around increasing access to healthy foods and engaging local communities in what it is to produce food. That, that, that fits their diet, but also is healthy and accessible and, and fun to kind of be a part of the process. There's joy there um, and Stephen brings that joy. And that's what we seek out in our Healthy Communities Fellows. Individuals who may not see themselves as health actors or health leaders necessarily, but who bring a, a commitment, not just to community, but a certain amount of joy to the possibility of making community stronger and better by leaning into the assets that already mm-hmm. exist there. Um, we've got other fellows who are doing work. One fellow who is really exciting, he's doing work. Uh, he's a former um, professional baseball player. He's based mm-hmm. in Alaska. And he has um, worked with young people, especially um, folks in the African-American community, young kids, to engage them in athletics and to use that as the doorway to start to talk about strengthening community and their leadership roles and how they can be champions in their own society. Um, And it's just such an empowering way to lead. Um, And we get to be in the work of solutions. And so we're continuing that to grow that out with a regional model, um, making sure that there's critical mass of leaders who are on that same train um, who can support each other. Because I can't um, say enough. This is very hard work. We have leaders also who are recovering from the pandemic and the traumas of just trying to be leaders at the moment and revive communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have each other now. And, and so I, I, I'm a chief advocate of yeah. non who are committed, who have risen above, brought, rose to the occasion um, and continue to lead in creative and positive ways.
2: So I've well, got to ask you that, I'm so curious, how do you find these fellows or how do they Find you. What's the combination of social networking or recruitment nomination? Tell us about that.
1: Great question. So we rely heavily on our our network of fellows to nominate. That's our first. Yeah. They know who they are. Um, secondly, we reach out to our network and other leading organizations that that embody the sort of characteristics that we want to replicate. Meaning, they're collaborative organizations. They're committed to health and well being. They evolve. They're adaptable and they understand the importance of leadership. So we reach out to organizations like that. Um, and then you we know, we are always on the lookout. Um, we, uh, as you know, are committed to equity. So if we know people or their names, we are reading the news, my whole team, we're very much looking out for new, or not necessarily new talent, but talent that's been overlooked. So we're, we're reading and watching and keeping ourselves abreast of the change makers around the globe who could benefit from you know, a connection and a partnership with the Aspen Institute.
0: Well, I I want to talk a little bit about uh, measurement uh, as well. But before that, uh, you know, Margaret and I just got back from San Diego, where we're at a meeting of all the health centers in the country. And fundamental to their uh, organization is that the majority of their board members are uh, patients themselves. And you just see this up swelling of leaders uh, all across the country representing the 31 million patients that are seeing majority uh, are from diverse communities, um, almost all living in poverty, but the drawing from that strength is so critical. But I I do want to focus about the nonprofit uh, sector, that doing good isn't enough, uh, that we need to show measurable outcomes that really What's interesting about uh, Healthy Community Fellows is that they're tackling problems from all angles, technology, food recovery, food access. Uh, how do you go about measuring outcomes uh, with such diverse approaches?
1: Uh, that's a great question. So I'll start with that is not our, our mission. Um, our mission really is they've already proven themselves in their impact meeting. We've read their reports. We talked to other trusted members in that community that know that they've experienced um, measurable improvements in the community well-being <clears throat> sort of marker. Uh, and those metrics vary, as you've noted, from community to community. Um, what we are uh, working on doing is ensuring that when we tell the story of a fellow, that they are able actually to tell their own story of impact and naming their, the metrics that mean the most to them. And the ways in which they work that enable them to have that impact. So it's very individualized. Um, with that said, there are key themes, as you know, the fact that there is representation on their board that looks different than you know your typical nonprofit. That the leadership of their organization uh, is creating a hiring plan strategy that is more representative than sort of standard uh, nonprofit partners, um, and that they are. Continuing to grow and scale their programming um, in ways that are valued and responsive mm-hmm. to community demand. So that's what, really what we're looking at. But I, again, it's a it's a bigger conversation to have with um, federal partners so that they can start to embed some of those metrics um, in their own efforts. Because you know a lot of money gets gets wasted um, mm-hmm. at the levels and misdirected um, only because there are favorites. Let's be honest in this world, and those favorites tend to dominate the conversation. So what we're aiming to do is position these organizations in front of our national, state level partners so that they're also on the short list for high quality programs and projects um, that are proven um, and that need that extra investment to start to codify metrics that matter at the local level.
2: Well, I wonder uh, if you could uh, also speak a little bit to the people maybe coming up behind the fellows that you have, uh, the, in, the next generation of innovators, perhaps. And I'm, I'm really curious, and uh, I think anybody who who've been fortunate enough to be in fellowships that foster leadership might also say that there's a uh, a skill set around innovation, right? Uh, how you take that brilliant idea actually make it work in practice, move it forward. Have you, as part of the uh, the fellows program, uh, developed sort of a curriculum around that, around teaching people how to innovate or to go back and help others? Some people do seem to come to it somewhat naturally. Probably most of the humans need a little more skill building to actually go forth and innovate. Tell us how you're approaching that.
1: That's a great question. And we do have a curriculum in our fellowship program that enables our fellows to, again, deliver on their vision of innovation, whatever that concept is. Uh, Typically, their idea is already in motion. Um, But having access, for example, to an executive coach Mm -hmm. as well as a media coach and someone who uh, can, can help them respond to other technical requests along the way, that's kind of the support that we offer. Um, We also uh, are committed to this. This is why many of our successful um, selected fellows come from our existing pool, meaning that nominees, their names come from that pool because they understand and they serve as a support network locally um, to enable the fact that, to enable them to continue to innovate, uh, if you will. And I want to pause on the word innovation because Mm -hmm. typically... um, when, you, when we think of innovation at the highest levels, we think of tech innovation, digital innovation. And in our fellows group, you know, much of the innovation is in the how of delivery, not just creating um, a nice flash in the pan, techno, technical innovation that can't be scaled without multi million dollars. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want to sort of remind the health community that innovation, new technologies, critically important. But You know, unpacking the how of reaching people and ensuring that those innovations are reaching um, those that need it the most. That's really where uh, more emphasis needs to be um, focused on um, and more dollars in the how and less of the the, the what.
0: Well, let me pick up on that theme of innovation, because early in your career, you co-founded Boys Speak Out. Uh, which is a nonprofit organization with an emphasis on emotional literacy for middle and high school boys. How, how does that program work and what results have you seen?
1: Yes, that was, that was a, uh, an incredible program to, to lead and be a part of. Um, you know, it came out of the fact that at that time, this was, I'll say, 2007, eight, uh, 2008, um, and earlier, uh, there was a lot of investment in girls' leadership. Um, There was a lot of uh, understanding that girls needed support. With that said, there was so little said about the need for boys. Um, This is work we were leading in um, New Hampshire um, and the surrounding states. That's where we launched. And um, we just wanted to ensure that boys had a space, a safe place to articulate their own experiences and to find that championship and support that was needed for them to thrive. Um, we scaled that work to um, Atlanta, um, and so now we, we partner with schools um, and identify you know, groups, community groups, and, 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 and young men who are really interested in, in trying to you know, connect with one another in, in new and different ways, and, and also enabling schools to understand how to support young boys as they sort of navigate the complexity of our current educational climate, which is quite scary.
2: Absolutely it is what is on all of our minds these days. Um, well there are, just a few moments ago, if I can just go back, we were talking about the uh, the huge uh, uh, portion of the healthcare workforce globally that is made up of women, but that that isn't reflected in the senior leadership positions, which has a lot to do with what the priorities are. I think it's only a quarter of the senior leadership positions in healthcare are held by women. How are you focusing on that through your work uh, and and looking to change that?
1: I appreciate that uh, question. First and foremost, I believe in walking the walk. So I am within my own team, making sure that we are investing in recruiting women leaders um, er, early in their career and growing in their career um, and, and trying to understand what supports they need to thrive and then within our community we remind our fellows all the time that we will not succeed without a centering of gender equity in our work gender racial all sort of equity moments but gender specifically so when we note growth within organizations we ask those questions What's your priority? How are you responding? What are you explicitly doing? How are you telling your story around advancing gender equity in your own work? And then at the highest levels, I've had the privilege of being at um, global tables um, and other sort of national leadership tables and serving on boards where I'm sure to bring that voice and that um, centering um, to all of the uh, the decision-making tables.
0: Well, Lola, thank you for joining us for the voice of empowerment that you bring to your work. Thanks to our audience. Be sure to go online to chcradio.com to sign up for email updates. Again, thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you all. Thanks for listening.
2: This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities. Fifty
1: years ago, a small band of idealists set out to change their community. Peace and Health is the story of renegades, innovators, caregivers, and community leaders who discover that change is possible. Peace and Health, available now.